Yeah, I imagine uh, you have an AI yeah. that's like watching <laughs> CNN and CNBC yeah. and Fox News. That's, that's trying to decide whether to bomb North Korea. Yeah. Oh my God, right? <laughs> In a fast-moving digital world, what does it mean to be a sustainable business? And how does identity empower your business? Join me as I share a glimpse of our life at Spokio. Explore the minds of data industry leaders and dive deeper into relevant topics in the digital world. All right, so today we're very, very honored and glad to have William Sue, my old friend, uh, and also the co-founder and the managing director of uh, Marker Lab here at the uh, Tang Talk. Uh, William and I actually share very similar backgrounds. I think we all came from Taiwan, went to the same high school, same college, moved to LA years later. And uh, but, I'll, William, do you mind kind of introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? Sure. Um, my name is uh, Will Su. Um, uh, Harrison is my uh, life doppelganger. Uh, <laughs> that's what I like to call it. Uh, we literally have the same background. Um, although I'm a little bit older than him, so I like to think that Harrison's actually following in my footsteps, literally. <laughs> um, I, uh, I was born in Taiwan, um, immigrated to the U.S. when I was 10, um, and then grew up in Saratoga, went to Saratoga High School, go Falcons. <laughs> Uh, uh, and luckily for me and luckily for Harrison, uh, we weren't disowned by our families because we got into Stanford. <laughs> uh, and then after Stanford, uh, we went into the tech business um, and then somehow ended up in L.A. and then now both raising families here um, and still in the same tech business. So <laughs> um, very, very much uh, 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 interesting kind of path. Um, so... Uh, I graduated Stanford in 1998. Uh, famously, that was the middle of the dot-com bubble. Yep, I right? remember that. Right, like, like it's like, it like, it's crazier than the crypto times. Like for for the for the kids these days, they can only really think about crypto. So I would like to tell them that dot-com was even crazier than the crypto. Right, back in those days, uh, if a company adds a dot-com to the domain name or to a company name, right, yeah. and and then stock price will go up 10x the next day. Yeah, I remember I have a classmate that uh, got some little money from uh, his parents, and then he was able to buy a BMW like three series. Uh, and then right before the crash, because if obvious, obviously if he didn't buy the three series, like he would, we would not uh, buy, <laughs> we would uh, not be able to buy it then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we. Uh, so I ended up uh, spending you know about ten months working at investment bank, um, and then left investment bank, being kind of a a idealistic and perhaps a little unrealistic kid uh, starting my first company at 22. Um, we raised like about $15 million in venture capital in 12 months. <laughs> um, the entire company just full of my friends at Stanford. Uh, so we're just a bunch of kids running around playing Half-Life. Like the moment five o'clock hits, we're like, no more work, Half-Life time. <laughs> Right. What does it do, by, by, by the way? What's that first startup? I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah the company was called uh, BuildPoint. Um, mm. It was, you know, in today's parlance, we'll call it a vertical SaaS company. So we built mm. a suite of software, delivered over the website that helped general contractors bid out their job to subcontractors uh -huh. for the commercial construction industry. Um, we were, you know, super crazy. And I was an engineer at Sanford, so I didn't really know that much about business, right? So we're just like, well, like Yahoo's worth a lot of money because they have a lot of eyeballs. So how do we get a lot of eyeballs on our app? So we hired around 300 salespeople mm -hmm. across the US, put in offices in every single major DMA, and then had our salespeople sell a free product 
to all the construction software, because construction, uh, general construction companies in locally, like, mm. of course, we got a lot of eyeballs, <laughs> right? We were using people to sell a product that's for free. Like, there's no concept of CAC, right? What's your customer acquisition cost? Which is like, how many eyeballs do we have? Mm. And, you know, I think at those times, it was kind of like blind leading the blind, right? Jeff Bezos mm -hmm. said that uh, the, the, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, right? Mm -hmm. And my VCs didn't know any better. I didn't know any better. All I did was like spend money to collect eyeballs. I had zero revenues, and investment banks were asking to take us public. We actually signed uh, uh, an investment bank to actually take us public. Uh, unfortunately, I think three months after three months after that was uh, uh, 9/11. So, you know, obviously the market crashed and then uh, the VCs, you know, had an emergency board meeting. It's like, okay, there's no more free money. We can't raise any more money. How are we going to get to profitability? How are we going to generate revenue? Like, what's your strategy? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. What's what, what? So the VC the whole time, they're just asking you to grow eyeballs and that's it. They don't that's, care about anything else. Yeah, because that's what the public markets was doing, right? Remember the beginning uh, of the conversation? Like a company adds .com to its name and stock price goes up 10x, right? So all like as a native .com company, all you need to do is have some numbers that look like it's going up to the right and then mm -hmm. you can go public because everybody is just investing in potential, right? Sounds like crypto, right? <laughs> right? That's not worried about revenue. You just worry about, you know, my circulation of my tokens and how popular the token is, right? Well, so well, in some ways, crypto doesn't even care about eyeballs, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, 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 yeah. So, so you um, know, like we, we, I mean, rightfully so, I think. Um, mm -hmm. after, after that board meeting, my, my VCs fired me. Uh, so I was uh, uh, unemployed you know, almost immediately. And then uh, uh, they hired a bunch of kind of gray-haired guys from Oracle to kind of turn around the company. Um, and did you turn around? Idea? They did. So, oh. you know, I don't take any credit for this at all, but the company was eventually sold, I think, in 2013, a long time after that. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, and to a public company. And uh, for hundreds of millions of dollars, it had like almost $100 million in revenue by then. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So uh, I give a lot of credit to the people that, that turned it around. Uh, uh, I did not deserve any of that credit. And of course, they washed out all my equity, so I made zero dollars. <laughs> like, they didn't even call me when it went, uh, got acquired. Really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But how, how, may I ask, like, how do you feel like when that happened? You know, like, is that the Steve Jobs kind of <sighs> moment? Or like, how, how do you feel? And how do you kind of learn from that experience? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there's what seven stages of grief. That's what they say, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, I, I remember uh, the getting fired uh, in the morning, and then getting so pissed uh, by nighttime that I, I I waited until 1 a.m. I drove my car up to the the back back office entrance, and then uh, stole an Aeron chair. As the memento for for Buildpoint, uh -huh. so even today uh, I still have an Aeron chair at home from from Buildpoint. Uh, it's my my daughter's uh, chair. <laughs> 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 I think um, I think it's 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 past seven years, so the statue of limitation is gone. <laughs> you know your loss. <laughs> <laughs> but I was really uh -huh. angry. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think you know, like I with with time and age and, and some kind of self reflection. Um, you know, entire generation of entrepreneurs did not deserve to be entrepreneurs, including mm -hmm. myself, right? We, we didn't really understand what it means to generate revenue, what, how to build an organization, what does culture mean, what does process mean, mm -hmm. 
right? We just wanted to build and grow and raise money. And, you know, there's like 50 other things besides that when it comes to building a business. And, and you know, we, we needed to be taught a lesson mm-hmm. um, and then kind of learn the right way. Right, so, and that's your first job out of college, basically. Well, I, I spent ten months oh. at an investment bank, oh, I as see. an investment banking analyst, which also distorted my view of what companies were like, right? Because every company was going public at the time, mm-hmm. so I was doing a bunch of IPOs. Um, but yeah, I mean, I effectively that was my first job, which also meant that uh, after I was hired, it was almost impossible for me to find a job, right? Like, who mm. wants to hire a 24-year-old ex-CEO of a failed dot-com startup, right? And you remember at that time, like, like if you people found out that you're a dot-com CEO, they kind of look at you like you're a fraudster, right? <laughs> like, oh my God, you destroyed the economy kind of thing, right? Yeah. So like, like, um, like there was a website back then called company.com that listed all the failures and had the contact information and phone number of all the CEOs and like employees who are not happy will like harass these founders yeah. right so so it was kind of hilarious uh, at the time um yeah you know I remember those days and actually nowadays I'm not sure if people remember those days because nowadays people see these failures as badge of honor right <laughs> but back then it actually does carry a little bit of a negative uh yeah connotation, yeah like you know? like you know like how people look at St. Bankman Fried yeah. or, or, you know, some of these kind of crypto scams in some mm-hmm. ways. Um, um, certainly there wasn't any fraud, but people still felt like there was a whole generation of entrepreneurs that kind of placed greed over good mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and needed to be taught a lesson. And, you know, like if you're an employee and you have, you know, two kids and the family to feed and all of a sudden you're unemployed because the founders had no idea how to make revenue. Yeah, you're kind of pissed. I understand. <laughs> I'll be pissed today too, right? right. So what, what do you do after that then? Yeah. Um, I, uh, I tried to find a job. I could not find a job because nobody wanted to hire me. So I did what uh, people who are unemployed typically do, which they go to school. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought Google likes uh, hiring ex-entrepreneurs as their product managers. Um, uh, did you look for, for a job at Google? I, I did not. I probably oh. should have. I'll be retired <laughs> by now. Uh, I was uh, uh, too proud uh. to, to admit that I should just go work at Google. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they will hire me. Like I have a lot of friends that work at Google, and they've been retired for a very long time, right? Because Google was really started in '99, uh, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So that's that was a lot of my classmates, especially some of the best engineers, all went to work at Google. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and obviously, it's an amazing company now. Uh, mm-hmm. But I was just too proud and too stupid to actually understand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to business school. Uh, went to Philly. Uh, studied at Wharton for two years, uh, and then came back to the Bay Area uh, in 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with an MBA, I still couldn't find a job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just find it a little bit unbelievable. Actually. <laughs> Maybe your standards are too high or something. <laughs> well, I, you know, uh, I, I, I eventually uh-huh. lowered my standard. Yeah. Uh, I took a job working at eBay as an associate product manager, mm-hmm. which is a job they give usually to uh, uh, undergrads. Mm-hmm. Right, so I was like, I think, 29, 29? Yeah, I was 29, 28 or 29, uh, working uh, at eBay, sharing a cubicle with a bunch of like 22, 23-year-olds mm-hmm. as an associate PM. Um, I didn't really care about what my title, how much I was getting paid. I cared about 
observing how a great company is built, mm-hmm. right? And eBay at the time was an amazing company. People forget it was two to three times the valuation of yep. uh, of, uh, of Amazon, right? And bigger than Yahoo and bigger mm-hmm. than even Google when Google first went public, right? Yeah. So he uh, had a group of really amazing people who really experienced building product, doing marketing, doing sales, right? Kind of you check all the boxes. So I just spent my time at e- eBay kind of learning from the best. Mm-hmm. And... Um, actually, my partner at uh, at Marker Capital uh, was my boss at eBay. Oh. He gave me my my job, my first job out of after business school. Oh, cool! cool. Yeah, so that's how we met. Mm. And what wh- what are the things like that you learn? Maybe it's the the lessons, right? Good and bad lessons from eBay. Like, so, and by the way, yes, eBay at that time is actually bigger than Amazon, right? It's yeah, one yeah. of the tier one tech companies, right? Yeah. But but later on, they obviously got outpaced by Amazon. So, what are the lessons you learned from eBay? You know, uh, you you live and die by the sword, right? Mm. eBay is and probably still is, or was and probably still is a very analytical place um they measure everything they calculate everything and uh you know they 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 make like data and analysis a core part of decision making Mm -hmm. so if you have a business model that's working and you're trying to expand and grow and optimize and get better it's amazing you can keep that train going and going and going and going Mm-hmm. Uh, but being completely analytical and making all your decisions based on data and numbers also means that sometimes you miss the mega trends, mm-hmm. right? I remember when Amazon launched AWS, uh, the engineering team at, at uh, eBay is like, we can totally do this overnight. Why don't we do this? This is so easy. We spend all this time building our infrastructure. Why can't we rent it out to someone else? We should do that too. Oh. And the business team was like, Show me the business case. We have a, whatever, $30 billion revenue business. How are you gonna, does, it, does this revenue even matter, right? <laughs> like, first year you're gonna do 10 million, that doesn't mean anything. Next year you're gonna do what, 100 million? No one cares, mm-hmm. right? Like they couldn't get past the numbers and really think about the mega trends of the industry and how to ride the next wave mm-hmm. and really innovate and make kind of industry defining platforms rather than simply just Mm-hmm. How do we make the current business 10, 20, 30 percent bigger? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, uh, I don't think the company learned to take um, big mm-hmm. and kind of leaping forward bets. It was just kind of continually mm-hmm. to run this, do the same thing better and faster mm-hmm. rather than really thinking about the future. No, like I know Amazon folks, right? Because I, I actually did meet some of them and they're very analytical, right? And uh, and they actually have to write a lot of business case and business documents too. So what's the difference? Like why why the same analytical company like Amazon, like eBay, right? Why one of them was able to approve, right? The AWS, such a innovative venture, whereas the other one missed the boat? A single guy, Jeff Bezos. Oh. Right, like, yeah. like... By the time I was at eBay, Pierre, who started uh, Pierre Media, who started eBay, was already gone. Right, the guy who was innovative, an entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. and really changed how goods are transacted over the internet was gone. Right, and it was a suite of professional managers, including myself, right, mm-hmm. that was running the business. And our goal was to keep the train running. Mm-hmm. Right, rather like if we wanted to be entrepreneurs, we would go quit and start a new company. But if we're at eBay, our job to keep this train running. Right, mm-hmm. but. 
Jeff Bezos was like, well, I used to be a hedge fund manager and now I started Amazon and Amazon used to be sell books and now it sells cosmetics. So like if I want to do AWS, why wouldn't I do it like a single decision maker? And the, you know, founder driven companies, the founder has absolute decision-making part, right? <laughs> yes. Harrison, you know this, right? Uh -huh. yes. If Harrison tomorrow decides he wants to change the company from Spokio to blue.com, he can do it, <laughs> right? He doesn't need to go through a marketing sure committee <laughs> or, or, or get his, you know, like board to approve it and, and have the executive team to mm. buy in, right? There's just too many people mm. in a professional-run company that could say no. Mm. And honestly, just like any startup, any new business line, any new idea, the most likely outcome is failure, but that's not the point, right? It's about the expected value of the outcome, mm -hmm. not the probability of success. If you can win, and winning means $1 trillion, even 0.1% chance of winning is pretty good, right? Because <laughs> the expected value is very yeah. high, right? Mm -hmm. I think professional managers kind of can't see the big outcome because only entrepreneurs can, mm. right? Yeah, good point, good point. So what do you do after eBay then? Yeah. Um, I uh, I had I made this uh, promise to myself that um, the next time I start a company, I would actually know what to do rather than winging it and spending all my time playing Half Life. Uh, <laughs> so um, I I decided I want to spend the next ten years kind of working in corporate, climbing corporate ladder, and learn how to build a company, build a product mm -hmm. from two guys in the garage to. 50 people to a thousand people to a billion dollars revenue, right? Like the entire scope of like building a startup, right? Because at the time, you know, I, and I think this is probably a good thing where the heroes of, of our generations are people mm -hmm. like Michael Dell and Bill Gates who started companies then stayed 10 years and or 20 years or 30 years and built that business forever, right? Yeah. Into a global colossus, right? Not guys who like, you know, raised a billion dollars and then did a secondary and sold a hundred million dollars of worth and then retired and then went to the Bahamas while their company's not even public yet. <laughs> yep, yep. Right? Like this, the new generation entrepreneurs want to monetize really early and high five each other and win and, mm -hmm. you know, like go to conferences and then be more successful than their company. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, back then, my heroes were people that like live and died with their companies. And if they lived, then they live with it forever, right? So I thought, you know what? Like, I want to be that. I want to be a Gates or a Dell. So that means I really have to learn not just, you know, how to raise $50 million in venture capital, but actually how to generate a billion dollars in revenue, mm -hmm. right? So uh, I did the corporate ladder thing and, in you know, eventually ended up here in LA uh, working for AT&T in a division called AT&T Interactive, where I acted as a... Uh, executive VP and uh, uh, chief product officer uh, for a division. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, like, uh, what's your responsibilities there? And then what did you learn from this journey, like climbing the corporate ladder? Yeah. Um, what was the journey like? Let me think. So, um, you know, the AT&T at the time was really a data transport business, right? It's like a layer mm -hmm. one business, right? And um, for a long time, layer one innovation was key, right? Because the data and the pipes to enable the internet to happen was not quite yet built. And anyone who can build a better pipe wins. And AT&T was doing that, especially on the mobile and the cellular side, right? Mm. However, as the infrastructure matured, 
uh, innovation now can be enabled at the application layer, right? So companies you know, like Yahoo and Google and AOL mm-hmm. at the time was making a lot of money being an application provider sitting on top of these pipes. Um, and AT&T wondered if there was an opportunity for them to kind of capture some of that value and generate revenue. Yep. So they put some of their application revenue-related companies into a single entity. There was its iPhone. Um, so AT&T at the time was working with Apple to launch the iPhone. Yep. So they wanted to see how they can monetize that that relationship. right? So like, okay, go figure out, besides selling phones and plants, what else can we do to make money from the iPhone? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, they, they had a, uh, an advertising business that was a legacy of uh, its partnership with Yahoo called Yahoo SBC, which is the ISP business with the portal, mm-hmm. right? So they have revenue coming from the, from the portal. And then they had a IPTV business called Uverse at the time mm-hmm. that had uh, inventory, advertising, IP-based advertising inventory that they were selling. And then lastly, which was actually the most interesting part to me, was it's... Uh, at the time when I joined at and they still had about, I want to say, six or five billion dollars in print advertising revenue coming from its Yellow Pages business. Uh-huh. Right, like SBC, unlike other Baby Bell, right, never sold its print Yellow Pages business. Mm-hmm. Uh, they kept using it as a cash cow to build out its uh, mobile network, and obviously everything was going online. So they were wondering what was their strategy to turn that revenue who's mm-hmm. going away into a web-based business and a mobile-based business. And by the way, these businesses are all so different, right? So you're the chief product officer. Like, what? how do you actually kind of manage so many different uh, businesses? Uh, we, we really looked at it all as, uh, as advertising. Ah, I see. Yeah, so we picked a single monetization model, right, across all these inventory that's available to us with all these channels, and we viewed them as... Here's search, here's display, right? Mm-hmm. Here's data, here is the DSP, right? How do we monetize this in the context of the, the entire ecosystem around kind of mobile advertising and online mm-hmm. advertising outside of the captives like Google and Facebook, mm-hmm. right? So really, AT&T Interactive was an advertising company. I see, I see. And then, like, how do you kind of manage such a big team, right? Because like before, when you run your own, your own startup, that's that's one challenge, but AT&T probably have thousands of people, right? So what are the different challenges there? Yeah. Um, I, I, I can't say that I'm a, a great manager still, uh, but I know at least what the challenges are, right? Um, I think the first thing you do is hire people smarter than you, <laughs> right? And if all seven direct reports are smarter than you, that works for you, are smarter than you, and better than you, uh, you have a lot less problems, mm-hmm. right? And if every and everybody does that one, two, three, four levels down, you have an organization that I call it kind of self-healing, mm-hmm. right? Like people will do the right thing because they're smart. Mm-hmm. And what you have to do is set goals and then what you have to do is set culture, mm-hmm. right? And I do think as any company gets bigger and bigger, the role of the CEO changes, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's You're, you're kind of like the guy with the loudspeaker and you're repeating the same thing over and over and over again because that's important, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, yeah, the strategy, the culture, the behaviors, the goals, the vision, the mission, right? These are the things that people need to hear more than once mm-hmm. to, to, to understand. And then people need to hear more than three times to 
emphasize, emphasize, right? And mm -hmm. then they need to hear five times so that they can actually repeat it to someone else, mm -hmm. right? So um, I learned that um, to be a good leader, you, you actually kind of have to be an actor. <laughs> like no. You have to get yourself out there and then you have to like say the same thing over and over again and, 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 and kind of um, be the person that spreads the message, like almost like an evangelist. Yeah, 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 and and you know, I know a lot of people feel a little bit uncomfortable hiring people smarter or better than them because they are they fear their job will be taken, right? So how do you feel at peace, right, with uh, hiring so much, so many more smarter people than you that who can actually replace uh, you? I, I promised everyone that I will not be at that job for more than four years, and <laughs> and soon enough my job will be theirs. <laughs> I see, I see. Got it, got it. Yeah, because like I, that's why I told like my direct reports. I would like them to uh, to actually um, hire people better than them, and in return, you know, I will promise that uh, I will not find a replacement. You know, that's how that's how I dealt with it because yeah. I know a lot of people feel uncomfortable about that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a, a important transition as we get older to kind of let go of our ego. <laughs> yes. Right, and 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 understand that. If all, all the people that work for you are smarter than you, you you're probably looking pretty good to the boss, man. <laughs> yep, yep. So what's after that? What's what's after AT and T Interactive? Um. So this was uh, 2011. Uh, I've been at a, comp a company for like four years now, and I think I was. I'm trying to figure out how. Maybe like 35, 36, right? Mm -hmm. Um. As far still as, very young, by still the way. Still very young. Oh, no, so, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, still very young, uh, and especially very young in the context of AT&T. Yeah. Right? These, these are very senior executives who've been there for a long time. By, by the way, sorry to interject, interject, but why would they hire such a young person <laughs> to be a chief officer, right? Because in big corporations, usually they're senior executives like more than 40 years old or 50. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think I, I give AT&T a ton of credit. Um, they... They saw that the talent they have was trained internally, right? So mm -hmm. they knew the telecom business really well. But this was an entire new business, and they needed talent who were native to the internet to, to run it. Mm -hmm. But the CEO of my division was from AT&T, um, and he provided the, the context and the political kind of cover for us because we don't know anyone from AT&T. And then we were able to be left alone and execute towards our vision. So, so I actually give AT&T a ton of credit for understanding mm -hmm. um, how to innovate, right, and how to create organizations out of, outside of the core organization that could potentially cannibalize their old business. Oh, so it is intentional. I think it was intentional. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I think yeah. It was, I think it was very smart. Um, cool. And and you know, AT&T's main office is in Dallas, and they had headquartered us in LA so that we actually have some distance <laughs> from corporate. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So what, yeah, what's after that? Like, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, I was thirty-five, four years at AT and T, and um, thinking about what's next because this can't be it, right? Like another ten years, like get pension. What's the point, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I quit AT and T um, actually to start my own company. I was like, all right, I'm finally ready to be an entrepreneur again. I am not a faker anymore. <laughs> I actually know how to build. Shit. Right. So I quit. I was going to go start a company. Um, and uh, I caught up with my old boss uh, from eBay, uh, Mr. Eric Ronala. And he told me 
he's starting a venture capital fund. So I went corporate after eBay, and he went venture. So he was mm-hmm. doing venture in the Bay Area for a little bit, and say, "I'm moving to LA. You're in LA. I want to start a venture fund, a seed fund. Seed fund is a brand new, unique category that was really started in the Bay Area around 2007-2008, along with kind of Y Combinator, mm-hmm. right? And there was a whole generation of seed fund that's doing really, really well. LA needs a seed fund. It's an ecosystem that does not have a seed fund." Because seed funds takes the earliest risks and invest mm-hmm. in young entrepreneurs who might or might not have experience in the past and help them build their business, right? And especially in an ecosystem in LA, who you know maybe 20, 12 years ago was super early. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a Google office, or the Google office wasn't that big. There wasn't a ton of Stanford kids running around who already know how to start a company, <laughs> right? Like you actually really do need. Um, like venture funds actually knows how to do this, right? So, um, and the pitch that worked on me was, um, um, you know, instead of thinking that we're becoming VCs and well, you 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 will become a VC, and I didn't want to be a VC. Like we are starting a company whose market happened to be in venture capital. <laughs> That's a good pitch. Right? <laughs> Rather than worry about what the market is in, right? Like we are actually starting a firm. And we are being entrepreneurs. We're just entrepreneurial VCs, right? Mm-hmm. Not that that VCs who are thinks like an entrepreneur, but literally we're entrepreneurs who are starting a venture capital fund. Mm-hmm. That pitch reminds me of a Netflix story, right? It's like they, they said it's not it's a data company instead of a <laughs> <laughs> DVD or movie. Yes, <laughs> mainly sure. DVDs, no yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, Eric convinced me to uh, to 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 start Mucker with him. And ironically, um, we couldn't raise a lot of money. Like, turns out, no one wants to invest in a fund based in LA because LA funds has never made money historically. Uh, and of course, it's not like we have like history of like, you know, like the angel investing in some of the largest companies in the world. Like, we're just two guys who thought it would be a good idea, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we were a little bit of a novice, right? So it was super hard to raise money. So. Our first fund was only a million dollars of some friends and family and our own money. And you can't invest as a venture fund with only a million dollars. So you can write one check, maybe two check at most, right? And then you're done. And then what's next, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought Y Combinator, the check size is like 50K or 10,000 10, well, at that time, right? 20K for 7% at that time. Yeah, so you can with one but million, you can write a lot of checks. Actually. That's exactly what my partner said. <laughs> so instead of starting a venture fund, we're gonna call ourselves an accelerator, <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden, we're like, well, we're just like Y Combinator. Y Combinator's not in LA; they're only in San Francisco, right? Or actually, at that time, Mountain View, right? And uh, especially at that time, Y Combinator was very localized to mm-hmm. to the Bay Area, right? There was doing maybe like twenty company, thirty companies a class, so like. It wasn't really a threat outside of the Bay Area, so we thought we can be the white combinator of LA with a million dollars where we can write enough $20,000 checks and not run out for a few years. So we decided to you know, um, start, venture, uh, start an accelerator instead and call ourselves Mucker Lab, and that was the first incarnation of Mucker. Hmm. By the way, why is it called Mucker? I always want to ask you that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, my, my partner Eric is a, uh, a, a history nut, um, he really liked the history of technology. And uh, Mucker is actually a Thomas, Thomas Edison term. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, famously, right, Tesla was in his basement, single guy in the dark doing crazy stuff, and then he eventually lost his mind, right? Yeah. And then 
Thomas Edison did exactly the opposite. He's the Andy Warhol of entrepreneurship, right? Mm-hmm. Or inventors, right? Mm-hmm. He he spent most of the time talking to the press and, and marketing <laughs> and getting interviewed and hired a bunch of young college grads to do the experiments for him. And his view on innovation isn't, you know, how do I mathematically or, or looking at the molecules to come up with the right compound? He's like, we're just going to try, right? So mm-hmm. one of the things he did, well, famously, was, you know, he tried a thousand filaments for the light bulb and found the best one, yeah. right? He didn't really f- go figure out which one should he try first. He's like, we're just going to brute force it, right? <laughs> so his entire philosophy was more about repeatability, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why he always said, right, like, like in, in, perspiration always beats inspiration, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, and we believe in that ethos. So the people that worked for mm-hmm. Thomas Edison, um, because Thomas Edison was such an asshole, <laughs> I know, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, uh, started their own union mm-hmm. uh, to provide kind of negotiating leverage against him, as well as provide an alumni mm-hmm. network if they ever quit working for Thomas Edison. Mm-hmm. And uh, they called that union the Fraternity of the Muckers. Oh. And they were called the muckers because one of the things that they were working on at the time was the better formulation for bricks. So all these young, handsome men were working in the mud with like very little clothes on because they didn't want to get dirty. And then the press saw these guys and started taking pictures. And they started calling these young kids Thomas Edison's muckers. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I like, never know the name is that deep. Yeah. <laughs> so, so mucker mm. is a... Uh, a, a homage and a reference to Thomas Edison's ethos, mm-hmm. right, around uh, hard work, repetition, experimentation, and process, mm-hmm. rather than inspiration and origination and kind of um, kind of like luck, right? Mm-hmm. And then also against uh, Thomas Edison, um, because we we think. The true heroes of this kind of revolution is not Thomas Edison. It's the people that work for Thomas Edison. They were actually the ones doing the work. Oh, amazing. Amazing story, actually. Yeah. So is the culture that's the same as you described, like persistence and yeah? Yeah. Um, you know, I think, especially looking back at my career, um, it's not about how many failures you have. Mm-hmm. It's about how many times you try. And as long as you have one winner, everything will work itself out, right? It's mm-hmm. about the number of at-bats. And that's true for entrepreneurship itself. We tell entrepreneurs, it's not about whether you fail today or tomorrow. It's about coming back and failing more the next day, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then it's also about the company itself. If you're starting a company, you're experimenting, you're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't, right? Don't spend too much time thinking about what you're going to do. Just go try it. Just go do it. The data will tell you what's working or what's not. And then you're always kind of taking a step forward, whether you're failing or you're winning. You're learning about what to do and what not to do. And -hmm. if you can take those little success and have them one a day, right, over the course of a year, you can have 253 successes. Over the course of three years, you're going to have, you know, almost, you know, 300, uh, whatever, like 750, right? And, and if you can succeed a little every day mm-hmm. and it takes 10 years to build an amazing business, right? And most mm-hmm. businesses take 10 years. Um, you're going to build a pretty amazing business because that's a lot of success, <laughs> right? That's like, yep. kind of like <sighs> baseball games. It's not, it's not win by 
home runs is actually singles and doubles. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, yeah. I, I love baseball. Yeah. I'm an I'm a Oakland A's fan. Um, Wait, really? I am. Oh, me too. Uh, I thought you were going to say see, Giants or something. <laughs> my doppelganger, right? I like the poor teams. Yeah, you know, but so. you know they're moving. Did you see that yesterday? They're moving? Oh, uh, no, I haven't. Yeah. yeah, go read. They're moving uh, to Las Vegas. It's very sad. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, damn. Yeah, it's really sad. So, but, you know, um, P. Rose doesn't have the highest batting average at all. Not even close. Like, on the list of top batting averages, like, P. Rose is, like, I think in the thousands ranking wise mm -hmm. but he's the all-time hits leader mm, yes right and that's because he has more bats than anyone else and he played longer right and that's how you win in entrepreneurship get more bats and play longer mm. so in this journey like how do you grow from like a million to like nowadays like top three like accelerator in the world basically yeah. um one company at a time you know like mm. there wasn't this like strategic plan to take over the world like that I, I, I don't have that kind of ambition sounds like a lot of stress um it's it's our focus on the entrepreneurs and making sure every entrepreneur has an amazing experience working with us and feels like we gave our own all and they were able to give their all because of our help mm -hmm. right and if you're able to stack up these little success over time something will work out mm -hmm. right um you know even it took us three years to raise our second fund, and even that was $12 million. That's fund two. And if you know the math, in, in the VC world, you get paid 2% yep. annually, mm -hmm. right? So 2% on $12 million, that's you know 240K between two guys in the office space and you know mm -hmm. all these expenses. Yeah, we're not paying ourselves anything, right? So, and then another, Two years or so five years to finally get to our forty-five million dollar fund, still tiny. I think in two thousand seventeen, which wasn't that long ago, especially mm. if you minus the COVID years, uh, market was still Eric and I, mm. right? Uh, but uh, running the whole show, running the whole show, because really? we didn't have enough fees to go hire anyone, oh. right? Uh, but um, you know, we started getting exits and mm. having kind of major VCs invest in our portfolio companies. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly rising tide raises all boats, so I don't wanna like think it's all me or all Eric. Um, LA was growing like crazy, the ecosystem here, mm -hmm. tech was taking over the world. So we were at the right place at the right time. Um, but we started getting exits and in you know 2019 all of a sudden we were put on the map because one of our biggest companies got acquired by PayPal for Four billion. Four billion dollars, right? yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of a sudden, it was like, oh my God, I never heard of Mucker. Overnight success. <laughs> like, how did you guys become such an overnight sensation? It was like, we've been doing it for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> so is there like some kind of quality you look for in like founders? And what are those qualities? And also, most importantly, how do you assess out, like assess those qualities like in the one hour or two hour conversation? Yeah, um, we we look for entrepreneurs who have domain experience in the problem they're trying to solve. We look for entrepreneurs that have a unique perspective, like a mm. thesis, right, about mm. the problem they're trying to solve. Everybody looks at the world this way. Right? Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks that's just blue. That is not blue. That's Dodger blue, <laughs> right? Like, uh -huh. like someone that, that really see the world slightly different than everyone else and, and then therefore 
the problem's not this, it's this, and therefore I'm going to build this and not this, uh-huh. right? And uh, I think that's really important because that makes the product, the positioning, the strategy of the company unique, and therefore they're not competing in the same way as their competitors, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, if you, if you love Oakland Ace, right? Like, um, you, you, you want to be like Ricky Henderson, you don't want to be like Jose Canseco. Mm-hmm. Right, like more and more steroids to hit longer and longer home runs. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. But like, are you gonna make the Hall of Fame that way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, like. But then Ricky Henderson, my God, like you can score on the first inning without a hit, because a walk and two stolen bases and then a ground out, mm-hmm. one point. Right, like <laughs> like we were looking for the Ricky Henderson of the world. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing, which is related to kind of the macarithos, is um, we look for entrepreneurs that don't quit, that have a very, very low burn, and have mm-hmm. a team that can go build a product and iterate without burning through lots of cash, right? Like, not entrepreneurs will say, okay, now I quit my big company job, I'm going to start a company, I'm going to pay myself 150K, and then my co-founder needs 180K because he was getting paid 250K at Facebook. <laughs> so therefore, I need to raise $2 million to pay ourselves a market salary Right, mm-hmm. like you're only two companies, two people in, and you already have expense of five hundred thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Right, like that one. That that gives you a a counting clock on mm-hmm. when the company will fail. Like click, 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 click. You run out of money, you're done. Right, mm-hmm. but you have two founders. That's like, oh, I, I'm. I'm going to do it at the office. Not, not that we encourage that. Right? <laughs> or I've saved up some money. The company is mm-hmm. the only expense the company has is AWS, and AWS is super cheap. So I'm burning like $5,000 a month. Mm-hmm. Right? Then, like, can we find a way to get to 5000 or even $10,000 a month in revenue in the next 12 or 18 months of working with you? I'm pretty confident we can figure that out. Right, mm-hmm. and then after you figure that out, then you can take all the money we invested in you, not to sustain an experiment, but actually in growth. Mm-hmm. Okay, you figured out how to generate revenue. You got a little bit of product market fit. You know what your customer look like, how to price it, how to talk about your product to make them excited, and how to get them to sign on the dollar line. Mm-hmm. Let's spend every dollar we have in replicating the same thing over and over again, so we can take five thousand to fifty thousand, mm-hmm. fifty thousand to a hundred thousand, and then we go raise money. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, People are, um, I guess, surprised and, and sometimes appalled at how lean we make our companies behave. Mm. Like we do other VCs also do that too, or mostly marker? Um, uh, it's not like I ever worked at other venture capital firms, so it's not like <laughs> I really know. Um, I do know that you know we're in LA, mm-hmm. especially 11, 12 years ago. There isn't a lot of venture capital firms, right? So. Mm. Um, if they get a check from Mucker, they should just expect that's the only check they get. There's no point trying to find more, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's just so few firms. Like, there was, like, five firms back in the day, right? Yeah. Like, you get one out of five, you're, like, really good, right? You're going to get three or four out of five, the probability is pretty low that like, everybody mm-hmm. will, will like what you're doing. So just, like, like you kind of have to build a company this way here in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think other firms care much more about growth and velocity, Mm-hmm. Right, um, so that they can figure out the outcome as soon as possible. Mm. Is it the right bet? Is it not the right bet? Nobody wants to bet on black and have to come back three weeks later to mm-hmm. the same casino and find out if they won or not. Right? Mm-hmm. People kind of want to 
I place it on the back, they spin it, I lost, I won within five seconds, right? Um, ISO's more like, I don't want you to spend any money until we know we have product market fit. Mm. Oh, okay, now that we have product market fit, we can now spend money. Mm. And how do you, because all, a lot of these business uh, startups are in different businesses, right? Like earlier you said that you want to kind of find the person with a unique angle, but how do you know it's unique, right? Like, do you read up a lot of books to get you familiar <laughs> with all these domains? Like, or do you do you, do you have a sixth sense to, to, to know, to call a bullshit? Right. Okay. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, yes, we're wrong all the time. That's for sure. Oh my God. Uh, thank God in our business, if you're right one out of twenty times, people think you're a genius, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, yes, I do read a lot. I try to understand uh, as much as I can about any industry, and and how other companies have succeeded, mm-hmm. right? Like every time I need meet a new entrepreneur, I try to find. Oh, you used to work at Uber in LA fifteen years ago. What did Uber do in LA to become so successful? And then mm-hmm. I listen, and I learn, and I make a mental note. Oh, like, like, they went out and leased their own cars. So the first 50 drivers were not actually Uber drivers. They were actually company employees, <laughs> right? Push but you know that. Right? <laughs> like, uh-huh. stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that gives me data point to compare. And then also, I think, um, uh, this is why some of the best VCs remain best VCs in the world is that they talk, they see a lot of deals and talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. Mm. And therefore, they can get a sense of what everyone else thinks and how everyone is trying to compete with each other. Right? Like if you're a VC and you want to invest in a, I don't know, uh, a people search site. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, the way you do it is, especially on later stage VCs, you talk to the five companies in the space and grow them about their strategy and their thesis and mm-hmm. how they compete and how their product is different. And then you pick one where you believe, I believe that founder more than other founders, right? Mm-hmm. Or you take all these views and then you combine them and come up with a slightly reconfigured version of what you think is the truth, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, like VCs are really great at aggregating data and processing. I don't think VCs are that good at coming up with original ideas, but luckily for them, lots of people want to talk to them, so they luckily are able to have good ideas, right? Like I think half of the stuff I say is like I heard from some entrepreneurs like five years ago. It's like, oh, that sounds really good. I want to copy that. Well, next if time. this is the case, then uh, AI can probably replace VCs, right? Uh, <laughs> because if VC just aggregates and organizes and analyzes data, if that's the best com- competency, then AI will yes, probably. Yes. The, the problem with uh-huh. that is. The data around how VCs make decisions is is not on the web or crawlable, oh. right? Uh, but absolutely, like, mm-hmm. if, like, you put a bug in the Sequoia office, right, uh-huh. and then, like, listen to all the decisions that they're making and then analyze the, the conversations, uh, analyze the data, the decks that the entrepreneurs are giving them, I bet you can build an AI that can compete with Sequoia. <laughs> That's the next business Harrison and I will be starting. (laughs) Put a bug in Sequoia's office. Yeah, I mean, with now with uh, voice recognition and all these like new technology, large language models, you can probably do that, right? Yeah, it's it's really the lack of data rather than the lack of a model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So how how does like Marker today kind of compete against other VCs or accelerators? Because back in the day, like uh, let's say ten years ago, yes, geography is a big differentiating factor, right? It's, it's, there's not that many um, 
uh, VCs or accelerators in LA. But nowadays, like everything is kind of post pandemic, like everything is kind of remote, flexible, or it can go anywhere in the world, right? That concept of parameter is no longer uh, around. So how, how do you kind of compete? Now, um, we, we now have offices. So, you know, mm -hmm. five years ago, it was still just in LA. Today we have offices in LA, Austin, Nashville, Chicago, and Toronto, and we have more. So we are one of the very few C stage venture funds that actually have offices outside of their core geography. Mm. Um, in fact, we probably have the most offices of any C fund uh, in the US. Um, and therefore we have local coverage into the local areas and, and behave like a local firm. The other thing that we do is, um, you know, barrier firms are much bigger than us um, mm. and and have much higher kind of investment criteria, right? Because they're looking at a bunch of deals coming from Stanford grads. Yeah. And, you know, like it's, it's at least the Stanford grads can talk the same language as the VCs, right? Mm -hmm. So it's easier to make an investment in someone from Stanford, right? Or grew up in Saratoga. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, than someone that grew up someone else. So we don't have those biases. We has trained our AI, our, our judgment, on talking to entrepreneurs who did not go to Stanford, who did not work two years at Google, who did not go up reading, you know, TechCrunch and Red Herring or Business Insider, right? So, mm -hmm. um, we understand what is truly a problem versus what is oh, simply a jargon issue, right? Mm -hmm. And then we um, have structured the firm to provide so much help to entrepreneurs that, like. We can help them with their strategy, their execution, their skill set, and their knowledge, so that if there are holes on the team or hole in the knowledge of the entrepreneur, we can be the augmentation and help them get to the other side. Mm -hmm. um, so we take more risk than most venture funds would um, in the barrier, because oftentimes the deal that we see, they wouldn't be interested in until they have a lot of revenue. Mm. Right, and of course we'll work with the entrepreneurs, get our company to a lot of revenue, and then bring it back to the barrier VCs who are partners and and kind of pitch them for an investment. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that is interesting to me is, you know, I think 2021, right, mm -hmm. the tail end of the pandemic. Um, it is true, right? lots of VCs was just investing in everywhere, mm -hmm. right, and you know, like, oh, I'm just gonna be on Zoom and write checks, right. Um, that cohort company in 2021, for various reasons, including the fact the valuation was crazy, is probably one of the, one of the worst cohorts in, in venture history. Um, oh, yeah. I know that. Yeah. Wow. You talk to almost every VC, they almost regret most of the deals they've done in 21. Mm -hmm. um, so some of the best VCs have kind of retrenched from this kind of like, like locationless investment thesis and have back to kind of investing in their core geographies. And then with the market being bad for tech, Right, mm. the hurdles for Series A has gone up, mm. right? So a lot of these firms don't want to invest in seed stage companies in New Orleans. The, the, the why when you can invest in seed stage companies in Palo Alto, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So in some ways, this 2023 feels actually more like 2018 to me, where Mucker's back to being kind of a fund that invests as early as possible in in stages that most kind of national VCs wouldn't touch and invest a ton of resources and a lot of time. And then maybe a year or even two years later, when the company's finally ready, mm -hmm. um, 
they can then go to the bear and raise money, right? That's mm-hmm. always been our thesis. In 2021, it started getting kind of a little murky on what everyone else is doing, but now it's kind of back. So mm-hmm. with the tech ecosystem not being as robust as it was um, mm-hmm. two, three years ago, we actually feel very comfortable with our competitive advantage, mm-hmm. which is taking risks and then investing our time and energy to mitigate those risks and then build mm-hmm. better, better companies with our entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Are there any markets or kind of tech trends that you're most interested in? Like, um, hmm. Or like, is it just like generate AI is obviously on top of <laughs> everyone's mind or do you, are you interested in that where you're like, ha, huh, that's over, over, overly crowded? You know, um, so. I, I wish I, I can afford to invest in those companies. <laughs> uh, you know, um, yes, like valuations are way down across every single industry in tech except for generative ai mm-hmm. this like in generative AI, you can still like be like pre-launch and get 100 million pre like the, all the crypto money has moved to generative ai <laughs> uh, I, at least i think the generative ai has merits the crypto money i'm not so sure <laughs> uh, uh-huh. yeah so so you know um we we are a small fund uh those deals we you generally cannot afford um but it is a trend that is super important right i do believe that Every enterprise software companies will need to have some sort of AI component to their technology to continue to drive in efficiencies in their customers' operations, mm-hmm. right? Instead of just workflow and 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 data integration, now you got to help people make better decisions and and actually help them do the output, the work, the generative mm-hmm. part of this. So I do think this is one trend that's not going to go away. Versus like. You know, the cryptos, the drones, the ARs, the VRs, right? Like, how many of this have we seen in the last 10 years between you Uh, and I, right? And in the end, most of it just kind of fizzled away, right? I don't think this will fizzle away. Um, I do think it will be hard to figure out how to truly make money in AI by itself. Mm. I do think there's going to be a handful of large language model companies that's going to aggregate most of the value of the industry, right? including open AI. Mm-hmm. And that uh, the opportunity to create applications on top will be just as competitive as it ever was because it's easy to actually leverage one of these models to add to whatever you were already doing before. Yeah. Right. So um, Maybe this game around general AI is really reserved for the biggest firms out there, the Sequoias and the Andreessen's of the world, where they can take bets on some of these kind of model companies that are trying to build a platform. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe out of 100 that gets funded, five will win. Mm-hmm. And, and that's okay. Yeah. Right? I'm curious, like, because for on this topic of general AI, some people think general AI is just like a better, a much more. Uh, sophisticated or like autocomplete on steroid, basically. Right? That's on one end, and the other end thinks that the the AI is sentient. I, I don't believe that it's sentient, but some people actually believe that that could be true. And you know, AGI, artificial general intelligence, uh, uh-huh. can happen in the next five years. So in this spectrum, like, where are you? Yeah. Ah. Oh. Um. Uh, both. Right. <laughs> I'm kind of a cop out. Um, simple implementation of uh, AI is really just make the output easier for a person, 
right? Mm-hmm. And that output, I think, it's more than just text. It could be text. It could be video. It could be images. It could be audio, mm-hmm. right? Um, it could be presentations. Whatever it is, right? I think generative AI has great powers to help us do our job better. When I think mm-hmm. about how much we hate formatting on PowerPoint, that's an <laughs> easy generative AI job. Yeah. Um, right? Actually, we have we use a tool that. Uh, that leverage generate AI to give a lot of frames on our ads. So we give, feed a fic- picture and yeah. then you'll just like add a bunch of things and you give it like 1000 variations and then you can just let yep. the, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah, so I think there's definitely value added that mm-hmm. obviously, you know, like you create better ads and better performance, right? Uh-huh. That's that's direct economic benefit to everybody in the ecosystem. Is that like transformative? Probably not, right? But mm-hmm. like, it's great for the economy if like every worker is 10% more efficient, mm-hmm. right? That's like a reduction in 10% inflation, <laughs> right? Which is great for the economy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, does these large language models could eventually become Skynet? Um, well, if we hook it up to the right things or the bad things, then mm-hmm. absolutely, right? Like, like. This, these generative AI are capable of making decisions. Mm-hmm. And if you trust it to make the decisions and you hook it up to the nuclear button, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, instead of needing the president to hit the button, now it's some algorithm that's crawling the web, answering random questions, and you have no control over the input and how it's processing the output. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, it's making this, these type of decisions. For sure, really, really bad things can happen. <laughs> Right. So I, I do think we have to be careful about what we're hooking up these things to mm-hmm. and making sure that there's always people in the middle. Mm, true. Well, on that topic, at the very least, like the labels in supervised learning, the labels on nuclear button, no one has, <laughs> no one has uh, said yes to nuclear bomb yet, right? So uh, right, that's, like, that's at least provides some comfort, I would say. Yeah, imagine uh, you have an AI yeah. that's like watching <laughs> CNN and CNBC yeah. and Fox News. That's, that's trying to decide whether to bomb North Korea. Yeah. Oh my God, right? <laughs> That's crazy. So other than AI, like other trends that you're excited about? Um, well, I found that the most successful investments that we ever made had never really been about trends. Mm-hmm. It's always been about discovering a problem that's deep, that's hard to solve, not of people know about it, and then building something simple yet innovative to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Right, And then, you know, getting a lot of people to use it, right? Like it's it's never something that's that requires like innovation upon innovation upon innovation upon mm. innovation, right? Like it's always been um, a very simple problem or a hard problem with a simple solution that's pretty unique. Mm-hmm. So uh, I try not to get too caught up on all the trends. I try to listen very carefully to what the entrepreneurs are saying, and if he or she actually have a background in the topic, that's when you you know make sure you pay attention and be like, mm. oh, is that really true? Interesting. Tell me more, right? And mm. I think that's what you learn rather than try to learn from reading TechCrunch. <laughs> yeah. So what's the like the best kind of wisdom that you heard recently that you can share with our audience? Um, a, a lot of people ask me whether this is the right time to start a company, you know, like mm. the market's bad, lots of people are getting fired, blah, 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 and then people have time now, like they might not be working that much or unfortunately they don't have a job and like, should I be starting a company? 
And uh, my answer to them is, there's no best time and no worst time to start a company. It's not about timing your startup. It mm-hmm. takes 10 to 15 years to build a great company. You can't time anything in 10, that has a life of 10 to 15 years. Right? Like whether you started this year or three years from now, it's still 10 years to 15 years. Right? So mm-hmm. much more important is what's the problem you're solving? Is that a real problem? Right? Mm-hmm. And do you know something about it that no one else does? And can you get the dog to eat the dog food? Mm-hmm. In a good economy and in a bad economy, if you have untasty dog food, the dog still won't eat it. Doesn't matter what kind of economy it is. Mm-hmm. Right? The economy only impacts your valuation. And if you're starting a company to maximize valuation, you shouldn't be starting a company anyway. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you, thank you, William, for sharing so much wisdom. Like, do you have any last words or lessons that you want to share with our audience? Um. Uh, not really. Uh, uh, listen to Harrison every Wednesday <laughs> night at seven. <laughs> Thanks for setting our new schedule for the podcast. But if anyone wants to kind of find you, like how, how do they, how do they reach out to you? Yeah. Um, Mucker has always had a open door policy the moment we launched, mm-hmm. partially because we didn't have any rich or famous friends and therefore <laughs> we didn't get much deal flow. So we always put our email on our website and that's been the case since day one. So my email is William at muckercapital.com. And yeah, if you forget, check out the website and you'll see my email there. And uh, we try very hard to answer every rational email. <laughs> Don't just say hi, bye. I'm not gonna answer that. But if you're that right, might be written by ChatGPT. <laughs> <by the way. laughs> the the ten paragraph ones are probably ChatGTP. <laughs> That's true. Thank you. Well, thank um, you, William. Thanks a lot. No, thanks, thanks for, Harrison, for dropping by. Yeah. Thank you. Bye bye.